You know, I don't know what your image of the early church looks like. I, I think we tend to idealize and look through rose-colored glasses when we think about the early church. Our goal as a restoration movement has been to restore uh, the early church in present day. And so that almost suggests that it was a perfect church. And what we're trying to do today is get back to what a perfect church looks like. Well, if you have that idea <laughs> uh, and if you've ever attended a church, you know that churches don't look like that much at all, do they? Um, and, and if then if we go into scripture, we see that even the early church for however we might perceive it, the early church was also fraught with any number of different challenges and situations. And I think it's extremely instructive for us to realize the Holy Spirit wanted us to know whenever you're doing church, it's going to be messy. It was messy in the first century. It was messy in the second century. It was messy in the fifth century, in the 10th century, the 15th century, and in the present day. Because wherever two or three are gathered in my name, says Jesus, and then Jim says, there will be conflict. Because people are messy. And you put messy people together, and it doesn't automatically come out like a Betty Crocker cake. <laughs> you can take all these separate ingredients and it still sometimes is a challenge. One of the places we see the messiness of the early church community is in Acts chapter 15. Now, we're following what's called a lectionary. An election, a lectionary is a series of texts. It's a schedule that has already been kind of set up years and years and years ago. And so this is the text that is assigned for May 2nd, Acts chapter 15. And so it's interesting how the Holy Spirit has been working through all of these schedules. And, and, and I don't know if you've realized or sensed, but it seems that the Spirit gives us, even though it's been programmed for years and years in advance, gives us a word that we need at the appropriate time. And so I hope today's message will also help us as we think about what it looks like to be in church, but more specifically, what it looks like when there's conflict at church. Now, Acts 15 is central to the book of Acts, not just physically, but to the entire story of the early church. Because what happens in Acts chapter 15 determines what happens in Acts chapter 16. If the, the, the brothers in Jerusalem don't get it right, Acts chapter 16 looks very, very different. If the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had their way, it's very possible that the mission of the Holy Spirit to reach Gentiles, people like you and me, would have been severely hindered and perhaps never even continued to take place. In Acts chapter 15, we see coming to a head challenges that have been going on from a very early point in the church's history. 
We've already seen the tension that, that existed in Acts chapter 6 between the Jewish widows and the Greek widows. Some are getting more food, more bread than others. There was conflict in uh, uh, how we deal with outsiders coming in. And we didn't read these verses and preach through them, but Cornelius is a huge example. Last week we talked about this Ethiopian. But you have more and more non-Jewish people showing up at church. And so the tension was rising. What are we going to do about all these Gentiles? The tendency would to think, well, it's obvious. If the Gentiles want to come to church, they're going to have to come to church the same way we come to church. They're going to have to be just like us, circumcised Jews. And as Paul and Barnabas go out on their missionary journeys, what we call their missionary journeys, the first one is in Acts chapter 13 and 14, their, their work was mostly among Gentile communities, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they were streaming in. They were hungry and thirsty to be a part of God's family. And when Paul and Barnabas come back to their home church, Antioch, their sending church, there was a revival. It was an awakening. It was a joyous moment. And you can just imagine how much excitement there was. You can picture Paul and Barnabas with the church leaders and the Gentiles coming in, just high-fiving and, and them feeling, finally, I'm included. I'm not on the outside anymore. I can be a part of this movement and this kingdom of God. But within a matter of a verse or two, that mood changes. That mood changes. And so we're going to read uh, beginning in Acts chapter 15. I'll start with verse one. We'll read through uh, the entire chapter deals with this situation and the subsequent letter. But we're going to stop at verse uh, 21, which is kind of a convenient stopping point. So Acts 15, verse one, while Paul, Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing, arguing vehemently. And finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. On the way to this meeting to talk about it, they're already celebrating the works that God has done. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them, but... Then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, these are Christians, Jewish Christians who were also Pharisees, stood up and insisted that Gentile converts must be circumcised and must be required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows, Brothers, 
You all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the word, they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe, says Peter, we believe that we are all saved in the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among them and through them among the Gentiles. And when they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God visited the Gentiles to take them to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known long years ago. And so, says James, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles returning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating meat offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues and in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. The word of the Lord. Now, it's interesting. Ray, I don't think, knew what text we were going to be thinking about. And yet he read from Hebrews 10 that made this contrast, right, between the old law and the old covenant and how Jesus brings a newer covenant. But that's the issue. These Jewish Christians had been living with a millennia long tradition. They were hardwired to believe after going to their synagogues and, and going to their religious assemblies for years and years and years. They were hardwired to believe that there was no way a people, a person, could come into the presence of God if that male was not circumcised and if they did not follow the law of Moses. This was a no-brainer. This isn't even a discussion item. God has spoken and God is God. And if we don't like it, well, that's our problem, but we can't change the word of God. And they had a hard time believing that anything could look different. And, and, and Ray read about some of these things. Sacrifice. That's a no-brainer. You just have to offer the animal, and that's how you work to get your, uh, your, your sins forgiven. And we're going to be sacrificing until the Lord comes. That's just what we do. Until Jesus died. And now, he is the sacrifice. Temple worship. Very, very concrete. This is what you do three or four times a year. You go to temple. And you offer these sacrifices. And you participate in these festivals. And they did until... Finally, the Holy Spirit was able to break through their hearts and they realized, oh, wait a second, we are the temple. It's not this, it's us. 
And it's you at home who are connected. We are the temple and the Holy Spirit lives in us. So we don't go to the temple. The Holy Spirit has brought the temple to us. Circumcision seems pretty cut and dried. Every male must be circumcised until God revealed that the true circumcision he wants is of the heart, not of the body. He says, this is what I'm looking for. Men and women who are totally willing to remove from their lives the things that don't go with what God wants. The inclusion of Gentiles. I mean, they had preached and heard sermons that God has chosen the Jewish people to be his people and the Gentiles are out, outside and lost. And so when Paul and Barnabas and Peter and others begin to say God is doing an amazing work among the Gentiles, they were not against that work. What they were against is those individuals coming to faith without having to go through the Jewish faith first. This was not a polite and quiet conversation. The words used here are strong. This was an argumentative. People were mad at one another. The Jewish Christians would be saying, this is a salvation issue. God said it. I believe it. And what's the bumper sticker say? That settles it, right? We've been doing it this way for years. Who are these Johnny-come-latelys to change what God is doing? Well... If you would have been going to the Antioch Church of Christ before any of this happened, you might have thought, wow, this is a nice church. I think I'll, 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 I'll feel right at home here. I think there'll be a nice church. And then all of a sudden there's the arguing and the fighting and the messiness. The Antioch Church realized this was bigger than they could handle, so they decide to send everybody to Jerusalem. So the apostles and the elders with this group and no doubt all of the family that was at the Jerusalem church met together to talk. We don't know how long the meeting went. We call it the Jerusalem Council. We don't know how many people spoke, but Luke gives us summaries of three individuals. The first, Peter. And Peter shares his own experience. When God called him to preach and baptize Cornelius. Peter admitted that this was hard for him. It was not what he was expecting. It took repeated, repeated attempts. And, and what's happening in Acts 15 is also very closely aligned with what happens in Galatians chapter 2, so you can read over there. But at one point, Peter was just having a hard time with this because he was a Jewish man through and through and so he sided more with the Jews, and then when Paul approached that area and was preaching, he confronted Peter and said, Peter, you're a hypocrite. You can't keep playing both sides. And Peter had the humility to say, Paul, you're right. And now in front of this group in Jerusalem, he stands and says, God accepts the Gentiles. Then Paul and Barnabas give the second speech. And again, they speak from their experience. This is what God is doing, signs and wonders. 
So then the third speech comes from James. Now, this isn't the Apostle James. James was, was killed earlier. And there's a second apostle named James, but he's called the less and doesn't really appear in Scripture much at all. And so the vast majority of, of, of commentators and Bible students feel that this is the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe when Jesus was alive, but now has come to faith. We don't know the process, but now has come to be one of the elders and part of the leadership and perhaps the spokesperson or the spokesman for all of the elders. And James goes at this a little bit differently. James goes back to Amos and says, you know, what's happening now is what God said back then. And, and as we read through the text and you read these scriptures, it seems like, duh, <laughs> obvious. So how come they couldn't see it? How come these Jewish Christians and all of the Jewish people as a nation who for years and years and years had be, been reading these very same scriptures, how come they didn't get it? Well, it's because when we read scripture, we read as a community and we read based on our own experience and our own understanding and we come to the text with certain traditions, with certain experiences and certain expectations. James says, Amos tells us that when God restores the fallen house of David and when it will be rebuilt and restored, all of humanity is going to come seek the Lord, including the nations or the Gentiles. And James is arguing from Scripture to say this is what God has wanted all along. And then he says something in verse 19 that is a bit troubling. If all the other wasn't. <laughs> in verse 19 he says, and so... My judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to come to the kingdom. My judgment. James, as the spokesperson for the elders, doesn't say, let's take a vote. He doesn't say, after all of the discussion, we're going to go with the majority. He says... I will make this judgment based on my discernment of what Scripture teaches. Anthony Robinson has written a, a commentary on the book of Acts, and he says that there is a huge difference between democracy and discernment. This is his quote. Democracy, which honors very important values, seeks the will of the majority. Discernment seeks the will of God and the mind of Christ, which isn't always the same. Too often church meetings are conceived as exercises in democracy. Attempts to discern the will of the majority. Discernment is different. The focus is on being open to and discovering God's will for us. And James is saying... We've got a world that is dying, a world who is not Jewish, 
And we should not make it difficult for those people to turn to God. So, my judgment is that we should write them a letter. And in this letter, mention four things. Don't they, they, first of all, you can turn to God and you don't have to be circumcised. That's the good news. But then, we want you to stop eating food offered to idols, stop eating meat strangled, uh, uh, meat of an animals that have been strangled, stop consuming blood, and stop sexual immorality. It's a strange list, especially the sexual immorality part, because that should have been understood. If you're coming to Christ, you leave behind sexual immorality. And so many feel that what Paul is, what James is addressing is idol worship, what happens in a temple. And he's addressing things that Gentiles would have practiced as part of their worship before. All of this thing, all these things about the animals and the blood and the strangled and uh, the food offered to idols and the sexual immorality was stuff that was happening in a context of a Jewish temple. And so he's saying, stop acting like that. Stop doing that because that makes it impossible for us to have any kind of relationship at the table between Jews and Gentiles. So what do we learn from this? I, I think two lessons come clear. First, the Jerusalem church and James as a spokesperson was concerned about truly doing the will of God. They weren't going to compromise the gospel. They weren't going to back up, even though many people disagreed. This is not the end of the conflict. It's going to continue into chapters 16, 17, 18, 19, and so on. But then the second thing is they were able to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. You know, if you were to have a reporter standing outside this council when everybody came out, hey, how do you feel about the decision? <laughs> kind of like the poll watchers or, or whatever, right? I, I don't think everybody would have come out very happy. So, well, they didn't listen to me. I was against it. I'm not in favor of letting these people in. If I had to be circumcised, how come they don't have to be circumcised? There might have been people who were profoundly disturbed and frustrated, profoundly upset. But it seems that everyone felt, as far as we can tell, that God had spoken through the council, the apostles and the elders, and through James as a spokesperson. And so... We assume they hung in there and they made it work. Messy as it was, tensions as there were, the church and its power and its mission continued forward because the Spirit of God had spoken. And that's the challenge for us today. No matter what church you're a part of, there will be messiness. And the challenge is, is to truly 
seek the will of God in all of it, and then seek the unity of his people. Sometimes it seems those are impossible situations to find. But I think what we find in Acts 15 is that maybe they had a chance. And that's our prayer for all of us and all of you and whatever church you're a part of as we move forward.